0: Welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 103. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and it's so lovely to have your company. As this is the first episode of the month I'd like to begin by thanking the wonderful patrons who continue to support this podcast and welcome patrons who joined the Talking Tudors family in March. A very warm welcome to Matt, Mick and Jacqueline, to also usernames BerlinFan and Scatler. I'm so very grateful for your immense generosity and support. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. April's prize is a copy of King and Collector, Henry VIII and the Art of Kingship by Linda Collins and Siobhan Clark. Thank you to the History Press UK for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Tudor art is Dr. Christina Faraday. Dr. Faraday is an historian of art and ideas with a special interest in how images and objects can communicate in powerful ways. She is an affiliated lecturer in history of art at the University of Cambridge and specializes in the art and architecture of Tudor England. Our conversation straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Tudors, Christina. How are you? Hi, Natalie. I'm very well. Thanks. Lovely to be back. It's lovely to have you back on the show. So it has been a little while since since you and I chatted. So I suppose a really good place to start would be by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. I'm Christina Faraday. I'm a research fellow in history of art at Gomberlin Keys College at the University of Cambridge. And I specialize in the art of Tudor England and its relationships to literature and also music
0: at the time. Fabulous. Now, the last time you were on the show, we actually spoke about the fascinating world of Tudor neuroscience, which was really cool. And that was episode 92 for anyone who wants to go and have a listen. But today we're going to dive into the world of Tudor art. So when did you first become interested in art history?
1: Well, it was a sort of accident, actually. My family had always taken us to galleries and spent a lot of time at the V&A in London, which has an amazing collection of Tudor art. So it's sort of always been there in the background. But then when I applied to university, I wanted to study history. And I sort of got distracted on an open day by the History of Art Store. But I thought, well, I don't want to study art history. You know, that's for sort of posh people who who come from nice schools, you know, who don't need to worry about getting jobs. But I was persuaded otherwise by uh, one of the lecturers. And um, yeah, I haven't looked back. It's been absolutely amazing studying art history in general and particularly being able to focus on the Tudors because there's so much more that needs to be done. You know, it's a really under-researched area as far as art history is concerned.
0: And such an exciting area as well. So I suppose before we we kind of dive into specifics, maybe just if you could tell us a little bit about what art actually meant to the Tudors.
1: Well, the Tudors didn't really have a concept of art that we would recognise as such. So we think of maybe art for art's sake or having a beautiful object just to, sort of to, because it's beautiful and to admire it. But actually, for the Tudors, art sort of had to do something. It was practical. It might persuade an audience about the, the importance of, I don't know, a person in a portrait. Or um, it might have a kind of romantic influence if you're courting someone. They also didn't value paintings very highly. They, they were much more interested in tapestries and textiles. That was, the, that was the valuable stuff. So paintings were sort of treated a little bit like, so the average panel portrait was more like a kind of photograph that we might have now as a record almost, but perhaps one that can say a little bit more about you in symbolic terms than, than just a photograph would to us.
0: Yeah. And probably people that are listening have heard before that tapestries were hugely expensive. I think something mm-hmm. like worth the, the cost of a warship or something along those yes. lines. <laughs> That's quite incredible, isn't it? So what about in terms of religion? Did, did the, because obviously we have big religious changes and upheaval, did that have a, a big effect on, I'm just going to call it art, <laughs> our modern <laughs> concept, but yes. you, know what I, you know what I'm talking about. Did it have a, a big effect on that?
1: Well, this is um, a really important issue for the study of Tudor art because people have tended to assume, or at least um, sort of in the middle, towards the end of the 20th century, art historians tended to assume that there was no art in Tudor England because the Reformation made people, well, break the medieval religious images. They didn't want those, they removed them from churches, they burned them, that kind of thing. But then there's, there was also the suggestion that uh, people became iconophobic. So. The upheavals meant they were so afraid of images that they just didn't want any pictures at all, even of secular things except portraits, you know, that was sort of okay. But actually a huge amount of work has been done in the last um, couple of decades that showed, although images were removed from churches, even religious images were still acceptable in domestic settings. It's just about sort of the behavior that you use or, or do in front of the object. So um, it's actually a really complex issue, but one that I think People do tend to see, I mean, I've been told before when I've said I work on Tudor art, you know, people have said, well, they didn't have any art in Tudor then they had words, you know, they had Shakespeare, but that's just not the case. You know, there is so much beautiful, what we would call visual material culture, you know, media that you wouldn't necessarily expect because you have this fine art expectation from later periods, but it's all there. It's very exciting.
0: So the Tudors were obviously, you know, masters of propaganda. So how did they utilise some of these items we've been talking about, like portraits and, and tapestries, etc., to demonstrate and define their power?
1: If we talk about one example that will reveal quite a lot um, about what they did, so I'm, I'm thinking of the Whitehall mural, which was painted around 1536, and it shows Henry VIII, or it did show Henry VIII, life-sized. It burnt down in the in the Whitehall Palace fire. But we do have representations, we have Holbein's cartoons for the mural, and we also have some um, later sort of watercolours made when it was still surviving. So it was painted around 1536, which is the time of the royal supremacy, sorry, two years after the royal supremacy, but around the time of the pilgrimage of grace. So things are quite unstable. There's quite a lot of need for Henry to reinforce his power. And this mural effectively does that for his court and for his inner circle. So we're not exactly sure where the Whitehall mural would have been, but it's probably in one of the presence chambers. And people coming in, you know, they'd have initially been face to face with a very uh, lifelike representation of Henry VIII, which would have been very sort of frightening and imposing because he's shown as being incredibly sort of massive and um, with his huge power stance. But there are other kind of subtle things about the picture which express Henry's power as well. So what, one of the most obvious things to uh, Henry's audience would have been the single point perspective and the classical setting. Um, he's actually standing on a carpet, which was expensive object. And that shows off his wealth and, and the opulence of the, imi- uh, of the image and his very good taste. And he's also trying to compete with Renaissance princes abroad. So Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, had uh, employed Leonardo da Vinci. And by employing Holbein, Henry VIII is sort of mimicking that. So there's a whole kind of uh, aspect to his power and patronage there. But there's also obviously a very imposing presence of Henry. But behind him, Henry VII, his father and the Tudors, as your audience will, I'm sure, remember, did not have a very strong claim to the throne. It was all very tentative and it was a fledgling dynasty. That was why Henry was so desperate to have an heir, of course. So by having this anachronistic representation of his young father as king and then himself, and then the implied presence of an heir with Jane Seymour to the side, it's reinforcing this dynastic um, solidity effectively and and kind of reassuring people that the Tudors are here to stay effectively.
0: Yeah, and if I remember correctly that the text has a, a sort of meaning of, Yeah, my dad was all right, but I'm gonna be much better <laughs> type.
1: I- <laughs> exactly. And and the text as well. I mean, it's in Latin, so that's speaking to an educated audience. And, and it's interesting how often Tudor images do make use of text, actually. It it seems to be a sort of, you know, almost an aesthetic category in its own right text. But it, so it's in Latin, but the inscription is also giving a religious message. So you're absolutely right at saying um, my dad was, was great, but I'm even better. <laughs> and and the even better comes from what he did with the religious sort of, you know, removing idols and things like that.
0: Typical Henry style. Henry <laughs> style. Now whenever I love posting pictures of you know Tudor paintings artworks they're just so amazing and so layered which is what I love because you can look at one and then a week later you notice something you didn't see the first time and it's fantastic and I always get asked people are really interested in wanting to learn about the symbolism it's a sort of literacy that we're not all that accustomed to these days the Tudors mm. were great at it so I want to spend a little bit of time exploring this so for Firstly, what can we tell by the way that people stand in a painting and by what they're wearing?
1: Well, I suppose posture is important because it can tell us about the way the person wanted to be seen. So aristocrats, they maybe have their hand on their hip. They're quite debonair. There are also gender expectations. So women can sometimes be seen looking very demure with their hands clasped or something like that. But that can also be subverted. So um, the usual pattern, if there's a pair of portraits, for example, or, or a, ma- a husband and wife in the same picture, the left side is considered to be the dominant side. So that's where the, the male partner would go. But sometimes you get things the other way around. So if it's the queen, for example, she is sometimes shown on, on the dominant side. And in portraits of Lady Dacre, for example, who who campaigned for the restoration of her titles for her children after her husband was executed in a in a brawl. A gamekeeper died in a brawl, and he was executed. So the titles removed, and Lady Dacre wanted them back. And there are several portraits of her, kind of shown. there's one of her at her desk. She's poised with a pen, like ready to write this letter. Um, and she's active. You know, she's she's not just standing there demurely waiting for something to happen to her. She's actually trying to make things happen herself. And there's also a double portrait of her and her son in the National Portrait Gallery. And she's on the left and she is very much, she, you know, she's the more impressive figure in every sense in that picture. So that's sort of the, some of the ways posture can work. But with clothing, of course, that also reveals status. So even a very simple black outfit, the way it's represented can, you know, artists were very attuned to, well, Tudors were very attuned to the different value of materials. So there are certain hints that maybe this is silk or that it's been cut on the bias um, which was a much more expensive way of using up fabric. So even in a really kind of plain looking portrait, for people at the time, there would have been huge clues about the, the value of that costume and how much money they were wearing effectively.
0: And what about the symbolic meaning of objects that we find commonly depicted in Tudor works of art? For example, people are always asking about the flowers, animals, gloves, those kinds of things.
1: Well, the meanings can be so slippery and it's very difficult often to, um, to say, I mean, it's not like there's a kind of book that everyone went to is like, oh, yes, that, this symbol means this. So it can depend on the sitter, and it can depend on the context, but there are a few general rules. So gloves were a symbol of status that often shown in portraits of nobility or uh, that they're, they're usually not very practical gloves. So that sort of shows protecting their hands, you know, um, didn't have to do manual labor. And gloves are also given in courtship. So there's a sort of betrothal element to that. But also often gloves could have sexual connotations as well. So gloves needed to be stretched before they were worn. And that could be a euphemism for sex and everything that goes along with that. So the gloves are kind of power and, and also betrothal. Um, and again, there was no language of flowers, but the Tudors loved their puns. So, for example, if you see a pansy in a painting, that might be a pun on the French pensée, meaning contemplative or thoughtful carnations for betrothal or love. So, you know, that could mean something. But again, it, it depends very much on on who's looking as well. So it's not like all Tudors understood this. You had to know the sitter and you had to know. A little bit about their life to really understand what that picture is saying
0: yeah they made it complicated for us didn't they <laughs> just try and work it out and what about animals because I often hear that they're kind of like loyalty or something along those lines
1: well animals are really interesting because there's this really long tradition of reading moral lessons into the world so there are stories about animal behavior from classical texts and from medieval bestiaries which people at the time would have been familiar with and often animals are kind of referring to those traditions. So the ermine, for example, which appears in several of Elizabeth I's portraits, the story goes that the ermine was such a pure animal that if it was running from hunters and it came to a muddy stream, it would rather turn and face the hunters and die than soil its fur. So that's a sort of symbol of purity and that's why Elizabeth adopts it. But animals could also be part of puns or part of heraldry. So the Hans Holbein portrait of a lady with a squirrel is now known to be Anne Lovell, and the squirrel was part of the Lovell arms, but also there's a starling in the background and that's a pun on the family seat at East Harling, which is sometimes spelled East Harling. So it sort of sounds like starling when you say it out loud.
0: So what about the artists working at court? Can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the, the ones that were working there at the time? And, you know, it'd be good if, if we know anything about what they were paid. I love all those sorts of details and their roles because obviously they did more than just paint portraits. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Uh, If you were an artist at the Tudor court, you weren't just painting the king's portrait. You were doing things like banners for tournaments. You were making ephemeral architecture. You were maybe designing costumes or scenery for court masks. You might have painted a wall if it needed repairing. I mean, these aren't it's not this idea that we have now of the kind of star artist who goes around sort of making interventions. They were absolutely kind of work a day manual labourers, it just so happened that they also did these beautiful, um, amazing portraits that still survive. So a lot of their work is lost. The most famous artist under Henry VIII is obviously Hans Holbein the Younger. Um, and we know that in 1536, he was being paid £30 a year. And that's about equivalent to three years wages for a skilled, tra- skilled tradesman. So he is being paid quite a lot. But obviously, he was at the King's beck and call to do any, you know, patch that wall up, Holbein. So before the break with Rome, we know that there were a lot of Italian artists working at Henry's court. So Pietro Trigiano, for example, made the tomb for Henry VII, and Elizabeth of York, Westminster Abbey, and he did some very famous terracotta polychrome busts, which are extraordinarily lifelike. But we also know the names of some other artists, so Volpe, Penny, and Toto. You know, Italian artists working at the Tudor court. We can't connect their names with any surviving works at all. So it's one big mystery as far as that's concerned. I guess under Elizabeth, Nicholas Hilliard is probably one of the most famous artists of the Elizabethan court, and he's best known for his portrait miniatures. But we now know that he also painted large-scale works such as the Pelican and the Phoenix portrait. Those pretty definitely by him. And there was also the sergeant painter, George Gower, who was himself a member of the gentry, which is very unusual in this period. And he there's a, a fantastic self-portrait that he did where he sort of weighs his skill in painting against his family arms and he says it's great that I'm noble but um, well, a member of the gentry but actually my skill is more important. Those are some of the names that we know but a lot of the names are lost but as far as costs go if you wanted a very good portrait by a court artist in the middle of the 16th century it would have cost about four or five pounds and that's equivalent to about a m- four months wages of a skilled tradesman so Quite expensive, but not absolutely out of the range of, you know, a member of the middling sort, even. A bus length copy by a court artist would be much cheaper, so about 10 shillings, so two or three weeks' wages of a skilled tradesman. So this is what I mean, you know, these paintings were not considered extremely valuable objects in a lot of cases. In the later 16th century, a miniature, interestingly enough, by someone like Isaac Oliver, uh, the other Elizabethan miniaturist that people have heard of, that would cost roughly the same as a full-length oil portrait, so about 5 or £6.
0: Funny, because when we obviously think of Holbein and and Hilliard, you know, we're thinking, oh, they must have been paid so much money. but (laughs) (laughs) but, And it was obviously still (laughs) a good salary, but nothing compared to, say, the famous artists of today. And I was just thinking, just to compare, I'm pretty sure just off the top of my head that I think £30 was roughly what And Berlin's vice chamberlain or chamberlain was earning per year so that's a good comparison in terms Mm -hmm. of salaries isn't it? Yeah sort of court court servant effectively. Court servant exactly all right and what about some of the techniques and and I like I like to hear the sort of nitty-gritty details and the working practices of 16th century artists do we know much about you know how they did they do certain sittings or how they did their work?
1: yeah so artists it was still a sort of medieval structure effectively for the art trade if you can call it that so artists ran workshops with assistants and apprentices and you couldn't get anything ready made so panels The artists had to prime those panels and prepare them themselves. The pigments had to be ground up and made into paint. You know, you couldn't just go pop down and buy a tube of paint. And they trained the apprentices to do those things first, to to start with, almost start with the things they couldn't mess up, really. And then gradually the apprentices made their way up to doing More minor parts of the paintings and then finally maybe they were allowed to do other things. But we're actually still learning how portraits were made. There was a big project recently called Making Art in Tudor Britain based at the National Portrait Gallery in London and they did technical analysis of a variety of portraits and revealed a huge amount that we didn't already know about the working practices of these artists. So They found it was very common for several painters to work on a single panel so it might be that within the workshop, you'd allow the, the master might do the face or the head, the important part, and then an the assistant, a trusted assistant would get to do the landscape. And then maybe someone else would do the sky, for example. But there are lots of different ways that could work. So I guess there are some cases where one master might be responsible for doing the whole thing, you know, designing the panel transferring the picture over painting it all himself and then at the other end of the scale the master might just do the composition and leave the actual painting to his assistants or even contract the whole thing out like a middleman. It really varies depending on the picture and and how much presumably they were paid, how much attention each image got. But in terms of sittings, portraits mostly weren't painted from life. Miniatures are the exception, and we know a lot about how they were made because Nicholas Hilliard wrote this fantastic treatise on limning, which is mostly just complaining about how people don't, you know, value him enough. But um, he does slip some technical information in there as well. But for a large-scale oil portrait, you'd be maybe drawing from life to get a likeness, there'd be a sort of sketch and then that sketch could be turned into a pattern which a face pattern which could be used by different workshops so for a large scale all portrait you'd sketch you take a sketch from the life to get a likeness and then that could be turned into a face pattern to be used by different workshops but for miniaturists you might have two or three sittings of two or three hours to get the likeness and maybe working directly onto the Vellum. So with both oil and miniature portraits, costume or jewels could be painted in the pres- without the presence of the sitter. You put them on mannequins or something. So actually, the sitter has very little involvement in a way. You know, they, they sit for a drawing, they go away, they come back, the oil portraits finished in about you know three months or something like that.
0: I suppose the miniatures are probably perhaps more accurate than if they are painted from life or what do you think?
1: Uh, they are if we if we know who they are but obviously miniatures are easily mis- misidentified. Yeah. And also um, H- Hilliard mentions flattering his uh-huh. uh, sitters. So he talks about capturing the life and all of that, you know, sort of emphasises the quickness with which he captures the likeness. It's almost as though he gets it straight down on the page like a photograph or something. Um, not that he'd have had that reference, obviously. But actually, he he does talk about capturing witty smilings and their best graces. So he do not want to insult them. So, you know, it's It's people looking their
0: back. Yeah, (laughs) still tricky. We still need time travel, obviously. (laughs) So obviously some of the very famous portraits today have a number of versions, just to make things a little bit more confusing. And some have multiple copies of what appears to be the exact same artwork or portrait. So can you talk to us a little bit about portrait patterns and why these were produced and, and used in the 16th century?
1: Well, if a person was important, there might be a huge demand for their image so particularly the queen but also members of the nobility or even important members of local government you know there might be several institutions or guilds that they're associated with and those halls might want portraits of those dignitaries so face patterns were produced in order to make copying easier and it meant that different workshops could use them and sort of churn out several versions and they could change the costume or something if if you wanted to personalize it a bit but there were also formulate when I mean, we think of face patterns, but there were also formulaic patterns for the representation of things like hands or even sort of ladies' dresses. So there are templates for specific parts of pictures as well, which, you know, not just the face, so that they may have existed in several workshops as well. And the way that these patterns were used is you'd get a piece of paper or vellum and you'd poke holes in it and then it would be pounced onto the panel, which means you'd put it on the panel and smash a bag of charcoal against it. bit like sort of tracing now or people who do dressmaking, they might sort of recognize that technique. So you pounce the pattern onto the panel and then the artist goes over it with a pencil and then layers up with oil painting.
0: Now you've touched on the audience a little bit. So just to clarify, was it mainly obviously gentry nobility purchasing these kinds of things because they're still quite expensive for the kind of ordinary person. Do is there any evidence that any type of kind of art was being produced or utilised for the lower classes at all?
1: Yes, so prints were probably the most often, if if people lower down the social scale bought artworks, it probably would have been in the form of prints, most likely woodcuts, but possibly also engravings, um, although they were more expensive. So there were opportunities for people lower down the social scale to buy sort of cheaper versions of art. And and of course, painted cloths are a really important example as well, painted and stained cloths, which are kind of like cheap versions of tapestries. So they'd have, rather than having the image woven into them, they'd just be painted on this piece of cloth. And those were available to people up and down the social scale. So nobility also had painted cloths for sort of smaller or less important rooms in their houses. But even though these artworks were kind of out of the range of purchase of people go down the social scale, there were still a lot of opportunities to see these artworks. So there were a lot of objects in public buildings. Tapestries were often hung in the street for royal entries or sort of celebratory moments. They were hung in churches. And yeah, and there were wall paintings in taverns and places like that. So actually the the visual world of people who are lower down the social scale isn't as bland and sort of boring as we might expect just because they couldn't afford to have their portrait painted.
0: If you've studied, you know, any prominent Tudor personality, you've probably heard the words said that they are a patron of the arts. Mm-hmm. So it would be great to touch a little bit on patronage and of the arts during this period. Like, what did, exactly did that mean?
1: Well, very few artworks were made for the open market. So a- apart from the prints, which obviously sort of printed, mass-produced, paintings were usually commissioned by a specific patron for a specific space, So wall paintings, for example, are very site specific and even everyday objects could be made with significant dates or initials on them, like a posset pot or something like that. So even members of the middling sort had a high degree of kind of personalization in them, in their what we call material culture and the stuff that they owned. There's direct contact usually between the future owner or, or person who gives the port, the object and the crafts person who made it. So yeah, it's it's actually a much more they're much more involved than we might expect now. Thinking of how we go to the shop and sort of buy things off the peg.
0: And I'd I'd love to hear more a little bit more about the relationship between the patron and the artist. So what was the commissioning process like, and how much say or involvement did the patron have? I think.
1: In Tudor England, the artist did not have very high status. There wasn't this expectation that painting uh, was, it wasn't an intellectual process, it was a manual craft. So the person who's paying is the person calling the shots. Now, unfortunately, we don't have many contracts surviving, so we don't know exactly how these negotiations went. But we can infer that when objects or iconography are are included in portraits, for example, it's often highly specific to the person or the situation represented. So it may be that artists had kind of a, you know, a cupboard of props or something like, oh, know, yeah, we could do you a, we could do you an inkwell or something or a clock. Uh, I've got some of those, you know, would you like that in your picture? But often I think the, the patron would have said, I've, I want this. So for example, John Isham, who was a very successful businessman, had a portrait painted of himself uh, filling most of the frame, to be honest, with his hand on a skull, which is probably metaphorically, probably didn't just have a skull lying around. But behind him are two account books lying flat on their sides and above them a clock, which implies kind of regularity in business dealings and um, reliability. And those account books survive and they look exactly like the ones in the portrait. So this was, would have been an instance where he said, and I, I want these specific books in my portrait. And presumably they would have been lent to the artist who would have painted them in.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. I'm going to have to go and look those up. They're the kinds of details that I absolutely love. Now, we Mm. talked before about artists and their apprentices and workshops. A lot of the times the artist's name isn't given, but it kind of says the workshop of somebody or, or that kind of thing. So does this mean it was one of the apprentices or someone working with that artist at the time that may have produced it?
1: It usually... So there are different terms that used to be used in our history. And if you know what they mean, they're extremely useful, but they're quite bewildering if you're not kind of versed in that language. So workshop of, circle of, after... You know, all these phrases crop up, and usually it means it looks quite a lot like this person's work, but it's not good enough to be them on a good day. Right. So it probably means that it was one of their apprentices, or possibly someone that they trained, who then went on to be an independent artist in their own right. And it may be that that artist was involved in that composition or they just taught them to imitate them so well that they are still aping the master's style later on. But usually it's a sort of, we're not really sure, but (laughs) it looks a bit like that person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. um, Yeah. And it comes up a lot, doesn't it? So, So, obviously you know, it's difficult to identify the sitters for all the many reasons we've been discussing. So what are some of the techniques that are used today in order to try and analyse a portrait and find out when it was painted, who it was painted by, all those sorts of fun things?
1: Well, if you're in luck, a portrait is dated. That's, I'm I'm always very happy when a portrait (laughs) has a date on it. And that itself is, is interesting because it shows the sort of recording or memento mori function of a portrait. You know, we have... Uh, Thomas Wythorn, a composer who wrote an autobiography in in Elizabethan England, talking about having his portrait painted to show how time doth alter him. So that's really a you know a function. So dating was important, but they don't always have dates on them. And for a straightforward art historian like me, who doesn't have access to an amazing laboratory with all these fantastic machines in it, I would be looking at costume and at style to date the paintings. So that tells us something about the the time period, but actually also the way that the artist is approaching something like perspective or shading might point to their nationality. So Netherlandish artists have a particular approach to naturalism that you start to get your eye into when you've looked at enough securely attributed works, it starts to remind you of other things. Beyond that, there's an amazing array of technical analysis that can be done on these portraits. So, for example, spectroscopic analysis involves shining different kinds of light on a painting and seeing what comes back in reflection. And that tells you what particles are in the pigment and that can reveal the original colours. So it might have faded or or reacted with the atmosphere in some way and and changed over time. And spectroscopic analysis can reveal what colour it was originally. So that's one Method. You can also x ray paintings, and you can also use infrared technology to see if there's anything underneath, which is even more exciting.
0: Yes, and that's produced some interesting finds, hasn't it? Doing the, yes. the X-ray and the infrared. So today we're, you know, we're all about recycling, but it appears that the Tudors were too. So as some portraits using, I think it was the X-ray, or one of those techniques you've just mentioned, found there there to have been another painting underneath, or that the panels had been reused. So tell us about some of these kind of more famous ones that have been discovered.
1: The Making Art in Tudor Britain uh, project analysed several paintings in the National Portrait Gallery, and they found that several portraits of Elizabethan Protestant statesmen had actually been painted over much older religious images. <laughs> um, so, for example, Francis Walsingham, who was the Queen's spymaster, very um, evangelical, uh, his portrait, Na- Inventory 1704, is actually painted over an image of the Virgin and Child, um, which I don't think he'd have approved of. And also, uh, there's another example, Thomas a Lord High Steward, and his image, uh, which is National Portrait Gallery 4024 was painted over a copy of the Flagellation of Christ, the original of which was by Sebastiano del Piombo and is actually in the Borgherini Chapel in uh, Rome. So I love this because it it gives us a real picture of how artists were adapting to the ever-changing situation and you can imagine that in Mary's reign a lot of religious images were suddenly being produced again they were replacing the images that had been lost in Edward's reign and then Elizabeth comes to the throne these things are not acceptable again anymore and artists had to find new uses for these pictures and they didn't want to waste a good oak panel so you know they just think oh we'll just do it you'll just paint it over that so yeah it gives us a real picture of, of the kind of practicalities essentially of the of the artist's workshop.
0: Yeah, it's a real glimpse into like every, the, the actual everyday life, isn't it? Of, the, of yes. the artist. And I'm just, it just brings to mind um, wall paintings as well, because I know often they've found just incredible things under, you know, plastered walls and, and religious, obviously religious art under plastered walls. So there's definitely a lot to explore there, I think.
1: Yes. Fingers crossed for more discoveries. Well, a, yeah. re- a recent, in fact, something really fantastic recently at Oxborough Hall in Norfolk, they found centuries worth of things under the rat's droppings in the attic. Scraps of fabric and doublets and bits of manuscript. I mean, it's, you know, ed- all sorts of unexpected places these things can crop up.
0: Yeah, I did see that. They're like my favourite stories ever. Whenever, you know, something like that's uncovered, I think, oh, what else is out there? So actually, that's a good segue into the last thing that I wanted to ask you. Obviously, Tudor portraits are often being re-identified. I think some have been, you know, every Tudor queen consort and I don't know, all sorts of variations. And they're still often being found in those stately houses. So what Tudor portrait do you wish would surface? I
1: think i probably... Wish for the 1575 portrait of Elizabeth, which was by Federico Zucchero. So, just before the Kenilworth entertainment, where Robert Dudley kind of had his last attempt at wooing the Queen, he invited over Federico Zucchero, who's this amazing Italian artist, who's been working for the Medici, and he got Zucchero to paint portraits of Dudley and the Queen. And we only have the preparatory drawings. The portrait of Dudley was destroyed in a, a bombing raid in the war. But the one of Elizabeth, we do have a black and white photograph of that, but the one of Elizabeth was lost before that. And it's possibly the earliest example of a portrait of Elizabeth with allegorical imagery. So we, it may be that Zeus started that huge trend that, you know, ends up with the Ditchley portrait and the the Rainbow portrait and things like that. So I think it'd be fantastic to see that and in its final version rather than with the preparatory drawing. But having said that, actually, if I could have any artwork from the Tudor period resurface, it wouldn't be a portrait at all. I'd like the ceiling from William Cecil's house, Tibbles, which is spelt... Theobalds, but pronounced Tibbles. Um, And we know the ceiling because the Duke of Württemberg visited it in 1592 and he described it. I've got the description here. He said, it contains the 12 signs of the zodiac so that at night you can see distinctly the stars proper to each. On the same stage, the sun performs its course, which is without doubt contrived by some concealed ingenious mechanism. So there's some sort of automaton or machinery in the ceiling, which creates a kind of moving sun that goes around the signs of the zodiac wow. um, like a sky. And I just think it'd be amazing to see that and to see how it worked. And also to see if it was as impressive as the Duke of Württemberg obviously thought it was.
0: That sounds so wonderful. I've never heard of that, actually. I know they had fantastic ceilings. I and mm-hmm. there was several palaces that um, that I've read accounts about but I didn't know th- about that one. So that is really cool. Yeah, that would be fantastic if we found that somewhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hidden, in hidden in someone's attic or garage, that would be really cool. So, Christina, the last thing I want to ask you is for a tutor takeaway. So at the end, I like to ask my guests for a little something just for our listeners to go and explore after the show. You have given us lots of things already, but I'm being a bit greedy here, so I'm asking for something else.
1: I think I'd like people to explore the map of early modern London which is a website that uses the Agas map of about 1561 and um, it's interactive so you can sort of zoom in on Tudor London and click on different buildings and see what they actually were and it connects up to encyclopedias and things and it's just an amazing way of orienting yourself because it's so hard to imagine things like that isn't it how close all these things were and particularly if you're familiar with with London now, you can really kind of imagine you know, it's it's ten minutes walk, for example, from I don't know St Paul's to the office of Revels or something like that. So being able to picture that and actually kind of map it out onto spaces that you know is so exciting. And that can it's it's run from the University of Victoria in Canada, but anyone anywhere in the world can explore
0: this map. And that is what I would like people to take away. Perfect. That sounds wonderful for um, the time we're spending indoors these days, <laughs> something <laughs> to, to to pass the time. And thank you so much. But actually, I wanted to ask you one more question. Sorry, I fibbed when I said that was the last thing are you currently working on anything at the moment or anything that you any news that you want to share with us
1: I am currently working on a book on liveliness in Tudor art um, which I'm hoping will be published academic publishing is very slow I'm hoping it'll be published in a few years which I'm sure I will let you know about Natalie but um, yes yes, I'm currently thinking about how how artworks in Tudor England really were vibrant and vivid for people at the time in ways that seems so hard for us to understand, but actually made perfect sense to them with their educational background. So that's what I'm doing at the moment.
0: That does sound really interesting. Yes, please um, keep us updated. I might be able to lure you back again for (laughs) a (laughs) thought. And thank you so much, Christina, for taking the time to talk tutors with us. Thanks, Natalie. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tutors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.